Thank you. Please keep that passage of uh, Ephesians 4 open in front of you as we come to that this morning. But first, let us pray, shall we? Our gracious God and Father, we want to give you our thanks and praise for your word, the truth that you've revealed to us about yourself, about us, about our sinful condition and about the way that you've moved towards us in and through your son Jesus Christ to bring about forgiveness bring about restoration and reconciliation with yourself and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We give you thanks. We ask now as we come to think of this passage this morning, your Holy Spirit will indeed give us ears that will hear, that will understand. And Father, we pray that you'll just continue to instruct us of how we are to live as your people. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a person's calling in life will often set the standard for their conduct, won't it? I mean, the higher one's calling, the higher one's standard of conduct. If you happen to be King Charles or Joe Biden or Anthony Albanese, then the standards are a lot higher than just the basics, aren't they? If someone is being considered for a position as a high court judge, then you would expect them to be living a life worthy of that calling. You would expect them to be not racially prejudiced. You would expect them not to be guilty of any inappropriate behaviour towards children or the opposite sex. And that's not being unfair, is it? We wouldn't expect anything less from one of our high court judges. Well, there can be no higher calling than... Well, to be a part or to become a part of the church over which Jesus Christ is its head. It's a church that God brings together and will bring glory to himself through. This morning we come to the midpoint of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul exhorts us and these Ephesian Christians, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And that's the divine calling that Paul has been telling us about in chapters 1, 2 and 3. That is how Paul once again mentions that he is a prisoner for the Lord. And by mentioning his imprisonment here, Paul gently reminds his readers that he knows only too well and from personal experience how living a life worthy of your calling can be costly. It's like Paul is saying, hey, I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not prepared to do myself. Paul says in verse 1, I urge you, <coughs> excuse me, or in other words, I beseech you, I beg you, I implore you, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Or as other translations might put it, to walk in a manner of life, of the calling, or for the calling of which you have been called to. And I think it's pretty obvious here that this is a reference to your day-to-day -day living, isn't it? It's a reference to your daily conduct. Paul says that the calling you have received 
merits a higher level of integrity in our lives. I suppose the question we need to ask ourselves first up is, what is this calling we have received? Well, our calling comes from God himself. And according to chapter 1 and verse 18, we are called to hope. Paul says that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparable great power for us who believe. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul says to these Christians that as Christians we have been blessed, chosen, redeemed, enlightened, called, inherited and sealed. He says we have been given value and freedom and revelation and purpose and assurance and unity. We don't have to live a life that's worthy in order to gain those blessings. And this is where a lot of people today go wrong, isn't it? People think that they have to live a worthy life so that they can earn God's approval and therefore God's blessings. But that's just so wrong. Right from verse 3 and onwards of chapter 1, Paul reassures us as Christians that through our faith in Jesus Christ, we already have been called and blessed by God with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul now begs them and us to live a life worthy of the calling which we have already received. To live our lives in such a way that we will be a a, a, a um, visible display of God's eternal purpose and plan. This word worthy in verse 1, the Greek word axios, means to weigh something on a set of scales or to make sure that the balance is correct. Paul is saying, make sure that your lives balance out the calling that you have received, that your life measures up to your divine calling that your daily living corresponds to the high position that you now have as a child of God and as a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Well, look at verse 2 and onwards. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. They're lovely words, aren't they? Yeah? Lovely words, they just roll off your tongue, but also they're not that easy and they can be costly. For they speak of self-sacrifice, of foregoing my desires and my preferences and my tastes for the sake of someone else's. Paul says that a key part of living in a worthy manner will be our humility. Our humility. The knowledge of our high or divine calling should make us feel humble. And that's easy, isn't it? Remember the song, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Yeah? Not that easy. C.S. Lewis said, 
Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Can you imagine a church, or rather what a church would be like if Christians didn't do that? If they weren't humble? I mean, could you even imagine a church where Christians would bicker and argue or play power games to get their own way or where they hold grudges or they gossip or they complain about the way things are done or, or, or not done? I mean, surely not. Not a church, no. With humility and gentleness, with patience towards each other, enduring with one another in love, we work to maintain the unity that God has created among us through the Lord Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Being patient is realising that spiritual growth takes time and that we are all really a work in progress. And gentleness will go hand in hand with one's humility and patience. It's hard to be gentle if you are proud and arrogant and impatient. The focus here is on how a group of imperfect and forgiven people can preserve a common bond and care for each other. And it's only through the power and strength of the Holy Spirit that we even have a hope of being humble and gentle and patient with each other. Paul says that we are to bear with one another. But we are to bear with one another in love. And it's a love that reflects God's love for us. 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it's not proud, love is not rude or self-seeking, love is not easily angered, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Did you recognise some common words there from our passage today? Paul says, with humility and gentleness, with patience towards each other and in bearing with one another in love, we are to strive with every ounce of our being to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of and just a word of caution here because we need to be aware of a modern mistake that people make. You see, being humble does not mean being wishy-washy when it comes to the truth. No, it's not like that. Bearing with one another does not mean saying that truth does not matter. Sadly, many churches today assume that Unity must be kept at any cost, regardless of what truth may be compromised or even abandoned in the process. Living a life that is worthy of the calling we've received will involve proclaiming the gospel of truth and standing up for the truth of God's word. We are to keep the unity of the spirit. And one of the titles given to the Holy Spirit in scripture is the spirit of truth. Notice too how we are not being asked to generate or create this unity amongst us. We are being urged to keep it or to maintain it. It reminds me of that phrase that is often used in, uh, in wedding services. Yeah, 
What God has joined together, let no one separate. Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And that means protecting the unity of the Spirit or the... uh, Yeah, the unity of the Spirit, which is a special togetherness that the Holy Spirit creates in a congregation. It's our shared experience as God's adopted family. Make every effort, Paul says. This is something that's going to need work, isn't it? It's something that's going to be needing work. It won't be easy. On the one hand, it should be intrinsic because it is something that God has already done. We are already united together in Christ. But on the other hand, it can be hard work because our old sinful and defiant nature keeps getting in the way and messing things up between us. So we have to work hard at humility, not thinking about what is best for me, But what is best for others? What is best for the church as a whole? We have to work hard at being patient. Oh, yeah. Being patient so that when someone has wound us up and they're starting to annoy us, we see it first and foremost as our problem, not theirs, as our wrong reaction to someone that God has chosen and that God dearly loves. Belonging to a church is not a spectator sport by any means. It's going to need your personal and conscious and unselfish effort. Why? Because this unity is nothing less than the unique and divine bond that exists between everyone who has been made one together in Christ. If you look back to chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10, we find that God newly revealed will is to bring all things together under Christ. In chapter 2 and verse 15 we read his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, that is Jewish and Gentile Christians, now reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. Chapter 3 verse 6 Paul says that through the gospel The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of the one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And please note that this unity, these riches that we have in Christ, can never be lost. As we reflected on, I think it was last week, Romans 8, there is nothing in all of creation that can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. So then why are we being urged to keep this unity? Because God wants us to exhibit or to showcase the riches of his grace and this unity that we have together in Christ. He wants us to showcase that to the world. One of the comments that used to be used or made about the early church was, See how they love each other or one another. I wonder how many times you've heard that said of the church 
in today's world. Yeah? I mean, how effective are we as a church in living lives that are to the praise of his glory? If you're into Bible numerology, then you will know that the number one is the number for unity. Yeah, we had the Trinity. Three persons in the Godhead, but one God. That sort of thing. And here, what did we read? We are under one head, Jesus Christ. We are one new humanity. We are one body together in Christ. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you automatically become part of the one body of Christ together with everyone else who believes in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and verse 3 calls it the unity of the Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit who enables us to have faith in Christ and who bears the fruit of love in our lives so that we can care for each other in such a way. If you go to Galatians 6, you read of the fruit of the Spirit and it's all these things and it love, joy, peace, patience, forbearing and so on. Paul reminds us of the foundation of our unity in verse 4. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. That's the unity of the body. And it springs out of what we believe, and it is centred around the Holy Spirit. It's centred around, in fact, the three persons of the Trinity. God the Spirit, God the Son, and God the Father. How exciting is that? As Christians, we have the same God and Father. We share the same Holy Spirit. We have the same Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We have a common hope, a common faith, a common baptism, a common calling that unites us together. And we are to humbly recognise it and submit to it and rejoice in it and to demonstrate it. This unity is organic. It is living and it's vital Paul refers to it as being one body, a body where all the parts of that body, even though they may look different and have different functions, share the one common life of that body together. As Christians, we are the body of Christ and it is Christ who gives us life. In verses 2 and 3, we find that this unique Unity that we have assumes living in relationships, doesn't it? And it assumes that some of these relationships may be difficult. We're going to need humility and gentleness and patience, forbearing. I mean, don't you love how real this is? There will be real tensions and real frustrations. And Paul says... We are to maintain the unity that we have in Christ through huge doses of humility and gentleness and patience and just plain old putting up with each other in love. We have been given a gift of enormous value and we need to treasure it 
and we need to look after it. The gift of having your brothers and sisters in Christ around you is a gift that comes at the cost of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, do everything you can to preserve this unity. What does this unity look like, like in real life? Well, the unity of the spirit is very different from the uniformity of religion. It really has very little to do with how traditional or contemporary our services are or with the style of music we sing or the length of the sermon or the number of prayers. You see, that's not what our unity in Christ is about. It also has little to do with the people who come together in Christ. A person's social status or level of education, their earning potential, political leaning or personality type, those things aren't important either. The unity of the spirit is through the bond of peace. It's where those who are enthusiastic and feral live alongside those who are cool and rational. It's where those who are shy and vague rub shoulders with those who are confident and assertive. It's where a rocket scientist and a postal worker can rejoice together in their knowledge and experience of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You see, the great irony is that this unity is found in diversity. The, this, this union that comes from the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives is not the result of some coercion. It's a result of humble submission and compromise. Humble submission to Christ, humble submission to one another. It's something that's really great and special. And it's the kind of compromise that is exemplified in Jesus himself as he dies in our place and taking the punishment we deserve for the sins that we have committed. We don't dominate others and try to force them to do the, you know, do things the way that we think they should be done. Instead, we try to love others who may be very different from ourselves. Instead of encouraging others to be like us, we are to encourage them to become more like Christ. After all, that's where our source of unity comes from, from our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what unites us, our faith and trust in Christ. And all, all of us need to become more like Christ. Now, there's a good chance that you're sitting there and thinking, well... That's all fine and dandy, but I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can be that humble and gentle and patient. I don't know if I can just simply put up with others out of love. That's hard. That can be hard. It's interesting how pride gets in the way. There was a story I read of a man who was considered very humble and a council gave him an award. They gave him a humility medal. The problem was the first time he wore it, they took it off him. It's hard, this sort of stuff. When the formal part of this morning is over and we hit morning tea, 
how hard is it going to be to talk to others beyond the level of, say, talking to them about your week or the Fremantle Dockers or politics or maybe upcoming holidays? <coughs> Even if you want to talk about spiritual things, others won't. It's hard, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard to just have a conversation with other people, let alone trying to encourage them in their faith. <coughs> and yet Paul says that's what we should be doing. If it was going to be easy, I don't think Paul would have said that we'd need to make every effort to do it. I hope you can see that the church is more than a collection of people that come together, you know, on Sundays, a collection of people who come and go and are independent of each other. The gospel has made us one together in Christ. That's the reality. Jesus said by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples and notice that that is plural. They, they will know you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. Well, if it's hard work, how are we going to be able to live in this way? I mean, trying to keep the unity in the church, that's not going to be an easy task. Just take a look at other churches around us, even within Perth, and you find that there are many churches where there, are dis or where there is disharmony and conflict and division. You might be tempted to think that the task of keeping the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is really a bit beyond us, both individually and corporately together as the church. And yes, left to our own devices, we will always come down the, on the side of uniformity, that we will only see people like us being welcomed as part of the group. But we need to give praise and thanks to God and, uh, well, our God and Father for the riches of his grace and the greatness of his power. Look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. God bestows differing gifts in the form of people to the church. See, this is God's way of making sure that we have the resources we need for keeping the bond of peace the whole body, or in other words, our unity together is built up in love as each part fulfills their God-given role. And more about that next week when we come to verses 7 through to 16 of chapter 4. But for now, let me challenge you to live your life in such a way that measures up to the calling you have received in Christ Jesus and to strive with every ounce of your being to maintain this unique and God-created unity that we share together as the body of Christ. You see, the church is God's church, and it's composed of God's people. It's composed of those who are now adopted as part of God's family, and it's the result of God's work through his son Jesus Christ and it exists for God's glory. In the words of John MacArthur, we are God-created, God-loved, God-saved, God-fathered, God-controlled, God-sustained, God-filled and God-blessed. We are one people under one 
God and Father who is sovereign and omnipotent and omnipresent. He is everywhere amongst us. Or as verse 6 puts it, sorry, verse 7 puts it, who is over all, no, verse (laughs) 6, who is over all and through all and in all. Sovereign, omnipotent, omnipresent. Now if we had that vision of the church, then we won't find it hard to keep visible the unity that God himself has already worked into the fabric of our experience together in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we want to thank you for the way that you have moved in your son Jesus to save us, to indeed reconcile us back to yourself and to one another. We thank you for the way you have grafted us together into the body of your son and that together we are members of that one body. Father, we pray you'll help us as we live out our daily lives to try and reflect that as best as we can. When Paul says make every effort, Father, we ask that you'll help us through your spirit to make that effort. Father, we want to live in such a way as your people individually, but as your church that will showcase to the world the riches of your grace, the extent of this unity that you've given to us, but especially also the forgiveness and reconciliation that you provided through your son Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that you'll help us to do that as your people, as your people in this place, Father, it's not easy to love each other uh, in the way that Paul stresses us to do. But here, Father, we ask that your spirit will gradually, day by day, change us so we become like that, that we can express a real love and concern for one another and accept the love and concern that others have for us. And we ask this through Christ's name. Amen.